0: Good morning. 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 Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your many blessings. We thank you for your love, your watch care, for your mercies, for your angels that uh, watch over us. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I want to say hi to our new friends in Celebration, Florida. I was in Celebration, Florida last week and where I did a seminar. It was very well received, um, very positive uh, responses, and so glad I was there and maybe we'll we'll get back down there and then how many i have to ask the question how many saw totality on monday to- total eclipse wasn't that incredible i mean i've never seen a total eclipse partial eclipses before but we went up we were blessed to be able to go up and for those 2 minutes of totality it was absolutely surreal Temperatures fell, birds began to fly, you could see the stars, and then the re-eating fire out behind the, the moon. It was just incredible. It got chills. Wasn't it awesome? Yeah. yeah, I'm thinking about going to Pennsylvania in seven years to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it was that incredible. Yeah. So next one in America in seven years. So our God is amazing. Yeah. Okay, so we're doing the lesson number 11 in the quarter of the Gospel in Galatians, and the title of this week is Freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ. Freedom from what? Freedom from the punishment that God inflicts for sin? (laughs) This is 19th century evangelist um, George MacDonald, who wrote, The Lord never came to deliver men from the consequences of their sins while those sins yet remain. Yet feeling nothing of the dread, hatefulness of their sin, men have constantly taken this word That the Lord came to deliver us from our sins to mean that he came to save us from the punishment of their sins. But this idea has terribly corrupted the preaching of the gospel. The message of the good news has not been truly communicated. Unable to believe in the forgiveness of the Father in heaven, imagining him not at liberty to forgive or incapable of forgiving forthright, not really believing him God who is fully our Savior, but a God bound either in his own nature or by a law above him and compulsory upon him, to exact some recompense or satisfaction for sin, a multitude of religious teachers have taught their fellow men that Jesus came to bear our punishment and save us from hell. But in that, they have misrepresented his true mission. He was a congregationalist theologian, and he's exactly right. Many people think freedom means freedom from punishment. But what about freedom from sin? That he came... Here's what John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the punishment of God for sin. (laughs) No, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, unremedied sin, if we have sin in our life and it's not removed, we're not renewed, we're not reborn, we're not regenerated, we're not recreated. If we have sin unremedied in our hearts and minds, what does that result in? So there is a punishment but where does the punishment for sin originate or where does it come out from? From From sin itself. It doesn't come out as an infliction from God. And this is critical to understanding and coming back to a trust relationship with God. He came to give us freedom from sin. What about freedom from guilt and shame? Do you know anybody who are bound by the chains of guilt and shame? (laughs)
1: Yes. Is it true that guilt keeps people doing the right thing a lot of
0: the time? Guilt keeps people doing the right thing? Um, you know, some people may do the behavior, some people, but most of the time people get discouraged and quit under the yoke of guilt. How do we experience freedom from guilt? And we're talking now appropriate guilt, guilt that is the consequence of actually committing or acts of sin, or acting self selfishly. We're not talking false guilt, but genuine guilt. How do you experience guilt, uh, freedom from guilt and shame? Change your choices. Change your choices of the thoughts? I deal with this all the time in my practice. How do we do it? Do you, you get freedom from guilt or shame by legal accounting?
1: Doing the right thing.
0: Doing the right thing. So doing the right thing. There are many people who who have committed some act that they are shameful about in their life, and they spend the rest of their life trying to make up for it, trying to do right things to make up for it, and, and and they're compelled to try to... But are those people free of guilt? No, it doesn't free them from the guilt. Forgiveness does. Forgiveness, okay. So what is forgiveness? Is forgiveness something that... Okay, Christ on the cross father forgive them they don't know what they're doing now Christ prior to the cross when the paralytic was let down before him he said so that you might know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins sins. okay so here we have the son of God God in human flesh forgiving the people who put them on the cross are they forgiven yes Mm -hmm. were they free of their guilt and shame no were they reconciled and saved I believe they were so these, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they, they've, at that point in time, Caiaphas and the leaders of the church, they didn't persecute Stephen, they didn't persecute Paul, they they, they embraced it and began being gospel ministers.
1: If, if somebody attacks me, and I forgive them, they may still feel bad, but they don't have the guilt for me that they've got to pay for what they did if so, I've forgiven them. so
0: this is what I'm wanting to parse out. And thank you for bringing this up. When somebody does you wrong, what heals your heart and prevents you from becoming embittered, uh, anger, resentful, hostile, and ultimately like that person seeking revenge is your forgiveness of them. However, your forgiveness of them does not change them. What changes them is repentance. Repentance. Now, it's true, the kindness of God leads us to repentance, it says in Romans, so Christ on the cross, his kindness, his grace, his his mercy, his forgiving nature was extended to those people on the cross, but there still has to be a response to that. Those people, in my view, were forgiven by the ruling authority. He did not hold that resentment and bitterness and hostility and anger. He longed for reconciliation. He wanted them to be friends with him, but some of them refused. Some of them saw this as weakness, some of them hated him for his gracious, kind, forgiving character, and they did not open their heart to receive the forgiveness so I don't believe in my view, that they repented and therefore, even though they were forgiven by God, their state remained one of unforgiveness they remained in a state of unforgiveness, they didn't partake of the forgiveness that was offered them thus they didn't repent, they didn't have a changed heart so they weren't freed from guilt but you can be through forgiveness when you partake and experience it And thus you repent and are reconciled to God. And that process we're describing of this reconciliation, this coming back into a unity with him, is the process of healing, restoring, regenerating, writing the law on the heart and mind, fixing what's broken inside, so that you don't just repent from an act. You actually have a change of heart from the motives that led you to do the act in the first place. You, you're a different person inside. You don't the, the idea of doing that. It, it is like, oh, I never want to do that again. That, that's far. I hate that. Yes, Linda.
1: And Peter and Judas are fine <coughs> examples of that. Both of them had a reason to feel guilty, and yet one of them hung himself and felt badly that he did that.
0: Do you think Judas was forgiven by Jesus? Yes. <laughs> did he get? Did did he have resolution of his guilt? No, his guilt crushed him and he hung himself for it because he didn't receive it into his heart. And Judas was, was sorrowful when he threw the money down for the fact his scheming didn't work out. His plan didn't turn out the way he wanted. I'm sorry it happened. This is like the kid who's sorry they got caught for doing illegal drugs. They're not sorry they did the illegal drugs. They're sorry they got caught and now are getting punished. And so they're thinking, how can I do it and not get caught next time? That's Judas. Peter, I'm sorry that I let you down, Lord, who I love and trust. I'm sorry for the fear and selfishness in me that led me to, to curse you and deny you. I want to be fixed in the inside so I never do that again. That's the difference. You're exactly right. Yes? So I actually had a discussion with one of my friends last night about this general topic of, of what sin was and its nature. And, and rather than them being individual acts, if you have to, like you said, I'm just sorry that I did them. When we were talking, I got the sense of, the, there's a belief that's either, you have a belief structure that's either divorced from reality, the way reality actually works, and how it functionally works, and how Jesus, that's what Jesus was calling us to, and that's why, you know, uh, Peter, whenever that happened, it was he was heartache, but then... It's like, like you said, it's keeping us from God. It's not. It's divorced from reality in the way it actually works. When a relationship, it's a relationship with Christ, and when we're worried about these individual acts that are being recorded and are being, um, I, I've just noticed that contrast. And I don't know if anybody else sees so, that. So the question we're, we're trying to resolve is, how do you resolve the shame and the guilt? And my my answer is by experience, renewal of heart. Some say rebirth. Some say writing the law on the heart and mind. But it's a repentance into a relationship with a God you can trust, who pours his spirit in and changes the inner man. And thus, you don't feel guilt because it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The old is dead, the new has come. We have a new life to live. Yes?
1: Would you mind taking a minute distinguishing between guilt and remorse? Since Paul, especially when he writes in Philippians, never lost his remorse for how he persecuted Christians. (laughs) But I
0: don't know that was the same as guilt. So, so, so my understanding is guilt is is can be either genuine or 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 or, uh, false or 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 true guilt. And we're talking about the true guilt. It is the conviction of wrongdoing for having deviated from God's design laws, acting selfishly and exploiting another person. We feel guilt for that. Okay, and the only way to resolve that is a genuine heart change, and if as far as possible, restore what damage you've you've done. Remorse, though, you can feel remorse for things that are not actually evil or wrong. You can feel remorse for um, having disappointed somebody because you didn't live up to an expectation, and I feel remorseful for that. I feel remorse for um, I had an opportunity, and I didn't take the opportunity to reach out to someone, and and, and that slipped by, and somebody else is now doing it, and I've missed my chance, and I feel remorse.
1: Is remorse the word you would use for Paul when he talks about the evil he did toward Christians before he was converted? Or would you use a different word?
0: I think remorse is is fine. I think there's other uh, elements there as well. I think he looks back and he feels regret, um, disappointment, um, sadness that he had those elements in his character and such misunderstanding of God and his methods that he would do these things. Yeah. Thank
1: you. When it comes to forgiveness, I, I, say, many times I say, I forgive you, but I'm not going to forget what you've done, so will that still be true forgiveness?
0: Yes. In my book, Could It Be This Simple, I have a whole chapter on the seven myths of forgiveness. And one of the myths of forgiveness that keep people from forgiving is this idea that if I forgive, I have to forget. Forgiveness does not result in amnesia. Forgiveness does not result in forgetting. Um, in fact, it would be foolish to do so. Forgiveness... Uh, For instance, a a person had a lady, it's described in the book, whose husband uh, cheated on her for the sixth or seventh time. I can't remember. And each time that she found out, she threw him out, and he went to the pastor. And the pastor, um, you know, he said, I I confess my sins, and and God has forgiven me, but my wife has thrown me out. So the pastor went to the wife and said, hey, Jesus has forgiven you your sins. Can't you see your way clear to forgive your husband his sins? And, And it's true. She needed to forgive him. So she wouldn't be bitter, resentful, and hostile. But does her forgiving him, this is the point we were talking about earlier, change him to so now he's faithful, he's loyal, he's someone she can trust? No, No, what changes him would be a change of heart, so that he is now faithful and loyal. And until that happens, she should be foolish to forget. If you had a child who, let's say, had a problem with stealing, and you... Forgive the child instantly. You don't hold resentment towards your child. You want your child to have a new character, to be reborn, to become honest and faithful. So you forgive them, but you forget that they have a problem so you don't take any interventions, no discipline, nothing to teach them. Oh, I forgot they even did it. No, you don't forget. You continue intervening because you're but you're not resentful or bitter to them. Now, when the Bible says, I cast, when you... Um, uh, I forgive your sins and cast them as far as east and the west, the depths of sea, and remember them no more. What is this talking about? Contextually, when reconciliation happens. So let's say you have a a child who, uh, I don't know, told a fib. And you're, you recognize this is developing a deceitful character and you love your child. You're not resentful. You're not hostile. You're not seeking to destroy them and, and somebody needs to intercede and plead to you to be merciful to your child. You don't need any of that stuff. Your heart's already for your child. You're already forgiving them, but you recognize there's a problem in your child. So you in love, discipline, discipline from, from the root word disciple, trying to teach them a better way. And under discipline, they come under conviction and they repent. Mommy, daddy, I'm so sorry. I'll never tell another story. And that's genuine and there's hugs and kisses, reconciliation has happened, okay? The issue is now resolved. So when your child comes home later that day from school and they come up the sidewalk, do you go, oh, here comes that little liar of mine? (laughs) No, you don't. As far as the relationship's concerned, it is now forgotten as long as it's actually removed from the character and it's no longer operating within the context of the relationship. It's not there anymore. It's not in their heart. It can be forgotten. And so when God has his way in our life, he fixes the, the brokenness, the insecurity, the selfishness in our heart so that we have new hearts and right spirits. And that's why he, in heaven, he will say, I don't remember your sin. It's forgotten. I don't remember that stuff. It's not between us anymore. That doesn't mean God has amnesia. He's got Alzheimer's and can't remember all the stuff that happened here. It doesn't work that way. He has perfect memory and perfect recall. And by the way, we will have perfect memory and recall too because the Bible tells us that in the new heaven and the earth, we will sing the song of our experience that means we'll tell the story and not only that the woman who was caught in adultery and then later put uh, anointed jesus feet remember and there she's being criticized and jesus said to them as they're criticizing those who are forgiven much love much if we forget what we've been healed and forgiven from it undermines so metaphor to bring this home you have a child who's dying of leukemia the, the doctor says there's nothing you can do. They, and you expect now your child to die. You, you're, you're, you're holding the hand of your child as you watch their life wisp away. Your heart is breaking. And then a new doctor comes in and says, hey, I've, I've just developed a new cure. Can I give it to your child? And you say, absolutely. And you give it. And, and you see vitality come back. The cancer goes into remission. Your child's life is saved. Do you have appreciation for that doctor? <laughs> how much appreciation? How much thankfulness do you have? now tomorrow after it's all done healed your memory is wiped out and you don't remember your child was ever sick and you don't remember what happened to get them well you still appreciate the doctor as much when we have this idea of memory erasure from our sins which some people teach it actually destroys your capacity to appreciate how much Christ has done for you it undermines your love and appreciation for him so we will have memory of facts and deeds we won't have anything in between our relationship with God that interferes so we'll be forgotten from the relationship So, the question, what does it mean to be in Christ? Because it talks about freedom in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? It does not mean in unity, in oneness, in heart, mind, attitudes, values, methods, practices, trust, confidence, via our acceptance of the truth He's revealed, opening our hearts and having the Spirit indwell us. Isn't that what it means to be in unity with Him? So, an online listener this week, uh, Russell Banton, uh, emailed me a quote that I'd never seen before from one of the founders of the SDA church, Ellen White, and I wanted to read just a portion of it to you. written over 100 years ago. But the moral law, which is to be written in the heart, is the law of love. It is the expression of the very nature of God of love as interpreted for us in the life and teachings of Christ. Who said, I have kept my Father's commandments? To keep the law is to love As God loves. That's what it means. To love as God loves. To the natural heart, this is impossible, so God has promised to give us a new heart. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, Ezekiel 36.26. In harmony with this provision is the prayer of David, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Psalms 51.10. We may call this conversion, or regeneration, or the new birth, or the new creation. But in any case, it is the impartation of a new life from God, that life which is love and is revealed in loving. Those who have this experience are partakers of the divine nature, Second Peter 1.4. And that nature is expressed in obedience to the divine law of love. When the principle of love is implanted in the heart, when man is renewed after the image of him that created him, the new covenant promises fulfilled. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. And if the law is written in the heart, will it not shape the life? Here is the true test. If we abide in Christ, if the love of God dwells in us, our feelings, our thoughts, our purposes, our actions will be in harmony with the will as expressed in the precepts of his holy law. And this experience is guaranteed to us by the promise of God and is provided for us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of love. Is that well done? <laughs> was that? This was uh, out of a, uh, a pamphlet that I'd never seen before called "The Savior of the World," page eighty-one. And this week on our Facebook page, Francesca posted a beautiful picture with First John four twenty-one from the remedy. And First John four twenty-one from the remedy reads this way: God's prescription is this, internalize God's love, which transforms the entire being so that you love both God and people. Whoever loves God will also love others. So what does it mean to be in Christ? That's the question. What does it mean to be in Christ? Isn't it to have hearts that love like Christ loves? And we get that from working hard. We get that from certain rituals. We get that from the indwelling spirit when we are won back to trust and we open the heart and invite him in. Uh, Second paragraph reads, Paul addresses these questions by warning the Galatians of two dangers. The first is legalism. Paul's opponents in Galatia were so caught up in trying to earn God's favor through their behavior that they lost sight of the liberating nature of Christ's work and the salvation that they already had in Christ through faith. The second threat is the tendency to abuse the freedom crisis purchased for us by lapsing into licentiousness. Those who hold this view mistakenly assume that freedom is antithetical to the law. What is legalism? Do it yourself. Okay, do it yourself. Uh, This is what I call legalism type one. Legalism type one is the classic form of legalism, a set of laws, a set of rules I have to obey in order for me to prove to God or earn to God that I'm good enough. This is legalism type one. A system of works put on us. There's another form of legalism, though, what I call legalism type two. Remember the first form, we try to earn favor with God by keeping the rules. The second form, we try to earn favor with the Father through legal application of someone else's rule keeping. Or achievements. The idea that a legal penalty had to be paid so that the legal payment could be legally applied to our accounts in heaven and we could receive the legal approval of God and be declared to be legally righteous even though we're not. This is legalism type two. And this legalism is the classic form of Christianity, Protestant Christianity in the world today, in every denomination. And it's a lie. And it's a fraud. Both are legalism. Both have a God who needs something done to him in order to earn his favor. Either you're doing it yourself or you have a substitute earn the favor in your behalf. But both have a God who isn't favorable to you until something's done to earn his favor. This is paganism. They both have a form of godliness but no power. And what's the greatest threat to holy living or driver to lapse into licentiousness? In my view, the greatest threat and I'm going to show it to you. I'm going to bring you through history and show you. It's the false imposed law construct that God runs his universe like human beings run their earthly governments, a system of rules that then he judi- jud- uh, adjudicates over, watching for breaking the rules, must inflict punishments for breaking rules. That's how we run our earthly governments. And the idea that God runs his government this way is this idea that has crept into Christianity and has corrupted Christianity and cheated it of it's the power to transform hearts and thus leads to the licentious life. For, for, for two reasons. First, the first reason, the rules, this rules-oriented approach is a violation of the law of liberty. It's like saying to somebody, hey, I love you. I love you so much, I made these rules for you. Try this on your spouse. We just got married. I do. Honeymoon's over. You go home. I love you so much, I made this list of rules for you that you need to keep in order to stay in harmony with me. Now, I need breakfast by 6 o'clock each morning, so you get up and be sure it's ready. And I need this, and I need that, and you got this. List. And if you don't, I will punish you. I will. I will sneak in while you're sleeping, pour gas on you, and light you on fire. I can only burn you for a few minutes. You'll die, but God can do it for eternity. I'm going to be godlike as much as I can. <laughs> and, and, and you try to do this to your spouse. It's a violation of liberty. I promise you if you do this, love will be destroyed. Rebellion will be instilled in the heart. And so people who come under this type of a God construct, I love you so much, I sent my son to die for you, but if you don't love me, I will kill you. Ultimately. The thinking people rebel and reject God. Reject Christianity, and it leads to what we see in the world today in in places where this form of uh, of Christianity was the predominant form of Christianity. What's happening in the world? Humanism. The rejection of God altogether... Humanism, and thus licentiousness. So what is the reason we get licentiousness? Because we have a false God construct that leads people to rebel and reject it and stand on their own two feet, humanism. And we get licentiousness. The second, though, the second reason why this does this is under the false legal view, you actually claim your problem is a legal problem. My problem with sin is that I'm in legal trouble with the ruling authority. Therefore, my solution poor sin, is a legal solution to be applied in the legal accounting mechanisms of heaven. That's my solution. Thus, it turns people away from experiencing the actual renewal of heart. They're not seeking. They're not even expecting. They're even told. There's no victory over sin. You're going to sin all the way up until Jesus comes. There's no renewal of heart. Um, you, there's no transformation. Uh, all the sins were placed upon Christ and, and punished him 2,000 years ago, past, present, and future. And if you accept his payment, it's applied to your record book. So all future sins you commit have already been accounted for because you've accepted his payment. And therefore, once you're saved, you're always saved. And there's no expectation of delivered, uh, deliverance and holy living. Both of these sides, the religious or the worldly, end up in licentiousness because of a corrupt gospel, because of the false law construct. Remember, under this is the predominant view of Christianity in the world in America today. Pornography use in Christian homes are no different than in Christian home, than non-Christian homes. Spouse abuse rates, no different in Christian than non-Christian. Child molestation, your own children, no different in child molestation rates in Christian homes than non-Christian homes. Teen pregnancy and abortion are higher in America than any Western country. 34% of teen girls, by the time they're 20, will become pregnant. 34% in America. This is 10 times that of Japan. America has 75% Christian. Japan has 1% to 2% Christian. It's triple that of France and Germany, double that of Britain, who have significantly less Christians. How can this be? Form of godliness. How can it be? God is... prophesying through Paul, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come, the second coming, will not occur until a rebellion occurs, and a man of lawlessness, get your mind around this, a man of lawlessness, what does that mean? Man of lawlessness, he's going to deny God's law, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction, he will, why is he doomed to destruction? If a person stood up before you today and started preaching this idea that we can live in outer space without a spacesuit. And we're, he's got a rocket ship that's going to take us all into outer space, and we're going to step out of the rocket ship into space and live. What is he doomed to? <laughs> yeah. He's doomed to destruction. Okay? When you deny God's design laws for how he's constructed reality to work, you are doomed to, to destruction. There is no life there. Okay? He's doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God in, in his, or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple? Now remember, this is probably around 65 AD. Christ has already died. He's risen again. He's, had, he's appeared to his apostles after his resurrection, uh, and he has ascended into heaven. So Christ is now in his heavenly dwelling place, heavenly sanctuary, Does this man of sin, some years later, ride up into heaven and knock him off his throne and start reigning up there? That's what Paul's talking about. But he's saying this man of sin will set himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Is it the temple in heaven? The Jewish temple is is destroyed within a few years of writing this. It was the Jewish temple in in Jerusalem. It's the mind. It's the spirit temple. The question, how did he set himself up in the spirit temple, proclaiming himself to be God? By getting us to believe that God is the kind of being who Satan says. In other words, God runs his universe like human dictators run Rome. sets some of laws that he then coerces and threatens to kill you if you don't obey. And if you worship that kind of God, your mind, your character, your internal being is corrupted. And you claim a form of godliness, but there's no power. And this is what Paul says. By the way, this is the same exact thing that Daniel prophesied about. That a power would rise seeking to change God's law. Daniel 7.25, and this is the power, seeking to change the law. How? By suggesting God's law works like ours. It's not designed. It's it's not the protocols upon which reality is built, space, time, energy, life, matter. No. It's just a series of rules. So Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power, have nothing to do with them. Notice, this is not the agnostics and atheists he's talking about here. They don't have a form of, they don't claim religion, they don't claim a belief in God. They deny it. He's talking about those who claim the belief in God. And notice he has all these licentious things. Why? Child abuse rates no different. Spouse abuse rates no different. Pornography use no different. Just what he's describing here. Why? In medicine, if your diagnosis is wrong, your treatment is usually wrong. Okay? Christianity has accepted a lie about God's law, and thus they've accepted a lie of what the diagnosis is. We're in legal trouble with God and we need a legal solution. No. We have a condition of being heart and mind that's out of harmony with how he constructed the universe to run and Christ came to restore us back into unity at oneness with God so God foretold through John at the end of time a special message was to go to 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 the world because of this very thing, this setup, this infection of the temple with this distortion, people worshiping a philosophy of God, having a form of godliness but no power, at the end of time, before the coming, the special message which would have the result of cleansing the sanctuary, cleansing the hearts and minds of people, was to go to the world. And In and, and four, uh, Revelation fourteen six and 7, I saw another angel flying in midair who had an eternal gospel, this is out of the NIV, to proclaim to the those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people, he said to them, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Which means what? Do you read it through the lie of God's law functioning like ours, which is the way it's taught? I've been taught this verse my entire life, and I've been taught it means something it doesn't mean. Because I've been taught it by people who believe God's law works like our law, and thus they say things like, we must be, we must be afraid or terrified, tremble, Because God has set up his heavenly tribunal. The heavenly record books are being examined. He's looking for all the misdeeds and sins that people have committed. He's looking to see for those who have applied the legal application of Christ's blood to their account. Those who haven't had that legal application. He is weighing the evidences of their evil deeds. And he's determining how long they will have to suffer in the fires before he ultimately kills them in the end. And there will be a test of obedience. You must worship in a certain way on a certain day, and if you don't, then you will be punished in the end by God. This is how it was taught to me, and it's all a lie. Under design law, we see something completely different. I'll just read it to you from the remedy. Then I saw another messenger flying in midair, and he had the eternal good news about God's character of love to proclaim to everyone living on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people which represents a movement of people who arise to proclaim the truth about God's character of love throughout the world. He said in a clear, resounding voice, be in awe of God and glorify him by living his methods of love because the hours come for everyone to make a judgment about God and worship the designer, creator, and builder who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and spring of waters, all of which operate upon his law of love. You see, you put the pieces together, this man of sin was going to arise, and he was going to misrepresent God and fill the temple, spirit temple with distortions about God, so he reigns in God's throne in the hearts and minds of people as the one who people believe God to be, and thus a message has to come to free the minds of people. And so it's time for people to make a right judgment and say, no, God is not like this. God is like this. This is the Elijah message. And What would Elijah say to the people? If the Lord is like Baal, worship him. If the Lord is like Yahweh, worship him. At the end of time, the Elijah message comes again. If God is like Satan, revealed him to be, a dictator who imposes rules and kills, worship him. If God is the loving savior, the creator of reality, who seeks to heal and restore all trust him, worship him. And connecting all this, to why the legal view con- contributes to more licentiousness, there's a second angel that follows the first. And the second angel following the first from the NIV says, second angel followed and said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made the nation's drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries. What does this mean? I've set you up. It's like I'm, I'm lobbing it in for a home run hit here. Okay. What does this mean? Yes.
1: One of the things I think it means is that Babylon fell.
0: What is Babylon? And
1: when, well, when Babylon fell, Israel was free to go back home. Babylon is who had taken Israel captive. And okay. they're suggesting so, by the false doctrine, the false premises So,
0: God's law. So, was. so the Bible writer is referring to historical events to talk about future events. Historical event, Babylon took Israel captive. Future event It's not... Old Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. But Babylon represents a, a power that can take captive the people of God. So, from what we just went through, what power took the people of God captive? For though we live in the war world, we don't wage wars, the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. So we have a power, man of sin, who's going to arise and set himself up in God's temple. How? By teaching such distorted views of God, primarily that God's law works like ours, and he's a dictator who punishes sin that we must be protected from, that we begin to worship this God, and we're in a war over the concept of God, and thus our minds have been taken captive, not physical captivity by Babylon, spiritual captivity by the evil forces who ultimately inspired Babylon to start with, and thus, there's a message: Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Babylon the Great, who make the nations drink of the maddening wine of her adulteries, maddening wine, maddening wine. What, what is it talking about? Is it talking about literal ethanol? What are adulteries? Is it talking about pornography here? Physical sex? Is that what it's primarily talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Broken uh-huh. trust. Love and trust that we give our hearts to other gods. And it tricks us into doing So this is from The Remedy. The second messenger followed the first proclaiming throughout the world. Don't trust Babylon the Great, a symbolic description of religions that misrepresent God. As it has fallen into the lies about God and intoxicates the world with its pagan views of God, maddening the people with its adulterous idea that God coerces and must inflict punishment if not properly appeased. That's the deal. Every system of the world that has a God in it that's not the true God has a God that will punish you if you break his rules. Every one of them. If you remember what made Baal worship false, remember Baal, the Mesopotamian god Baal, was the son of El, as in Elohim or El Shaddai. He was the son of the father god who was the creator of the weather, lightning and thunder, and brought the harvest, who fought against the Leviathan, the great serpent, who fought against the God of death, Moat, in his battle with death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the land. So what's wrong with worshiping the God who is the son of the father, who is the creator of life, who brings the rain, who brings the harvest, who brings life to the earth, who fights the great serpent, who fights against death, dies for us, and rises again to bring life? What's wrong with this? He asked you to burn your babies. That's it. You got it exactly right. Baal required Appeasement, some sacrifice, some offering be offered in order to get the blessings from Baal, and thus Baal became Zeus, god of thunder to the Greeks. me, the, uh, yeah, to the Greeks. Jupiter, god of thunder to the Romans. Thor to the Norse people, and Jesus Christ to the Christians who worship a god who must be appeased by the human sacrifice of his own son in order to pay him off so he doesn't kill us. This is modern Baal worship. And thus Malachi prophesied that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the, the prophet Elijah must come again. This message must go out to turn the hearts of the fathers to the sons, and the sons of the fathers, the message of love and reconciliation must be come forward again. Yes?
1: I was just going to say, uh, for me, being under that, that model, the, the primary motivation for me uh, to serve God was pain avoidance. And that's, and that's the top and primary motive that I ever had is pain avoidance. And eventually that breaks down. It always breaks down. You're always going to lash out at the person who you're afraid is going to attack you. And,
0: uh, that's exactly right. And I tell you, when the patients I see in my practice, the ones who get well versus the ones who never get well, the ones who never get well practice pain avoidance decision making. They make decisions which will hurt the least right now Or feel the best right now. It's all about not hurting, rather than making decisions about what's actually healthy, regardless of how it feels. And so I have to teach my patients how reality works. Once there is brokenness of any kind, there are no pain-free options. None. You have a broken leg? And you won't let them touch it. It hurts too bad. They can't splint it. They can't put a pin in it. You won't let them them touch it because it hurts. And to move it really hurts worse for a short period of time. So you you won't let them touch it. You don't avoid pain. You're chronically in pain, and you're chronically disabled. You let them splint it. You let them pin it. You go to physical therapy. There is pain in the process. But because it's all working in harmony with restoring, notice doctors are always working to restore people back to design, to design law. Doctors don't get people well. In violations of the laws of health, they're working to put people in harmony with the laws of health. But when we're out of harmony, there's brokenness, you can't get back in harmony without some discomfort. So learning to stand your ground and say, I'm not going to run from discomfort, I'm going to choose what's healthy, even if it feels bad in the moment, because it leads to health and eventually I get my function back and the pain goes away. This is why we rejoice in our trials and tribulations, because the trials and tribulations bring Character, help build care, patience, and it helps build character. We can't have a healed heart unless we're willing to carry the cross, to be crucified to self. It says in John, I believe, that Christ suffered in his flesh. Arm yourself with the same attitude, for those who suffer in the flesh are done with sin. Smoker is convicted and needs to quit. If he decides to put him down and actually quits, will there be a period of flesh suffering? Where he'll be craving, but he says no, and he goes through a period of agony and and suffering of the flesh. As long as he suffers, meaning he's saying no to what the flesh wants, he's done with smoking. But if he stops suffering and gives in to gratify the craving, now he's not done with sin, he's partaking again. This is a metaphor. This is true. We will be tempted with insecurities and fears and self-centeredness. And when they come... In the process of, through our relationship with Jesus Christ, overcoming those temptations, there is a period of agony. And you see this through Scripture. Look in Jacob's night of trouble. When did Jacob finally get his victory? It was the night in which he wrestled with the angel. That whole time, he was, God was working with him, but he still hadn't had the victory. And so it says he wrestled, uh, how, exactly how the language goes, um, but he wrestled with the angel. Okay, It wasn't wrestling against the angel which most people think the angel and him w- were wrestling with. It's like they were tag team together, wrestling with the angel against his own fear and selfishness. If you remember what was happening, Esau was coming. He sent all of his servants out. He sent his flocks out. He sent his own family out. They're all insult- They're like bulletproof vests for him. He's hiding behind to protect self, right? And the last to cross because he's afraid. He's self-centered. And what is he doing? He's wrestling that night, and he finally gets the victory over his own selfishness. Because he was wrestling with the angel over against his selfishness. What about Peter? After his betrayal, he goes out and weeps bitterly and he's wrestling with his own selfishness. What about David? After he has his terrible sin and Nathan confronts him, he goes and weeps bitterly and he wrestles with his selfishness. We all will be faced with this at some point. An agonizing night of the soul. And we either with our relationship with Jesus Christ, face it, die to self and experience the rebirth. or We run from it like Judas. So why is, uh, we're going to skip that part, just go to the notes, we're going to jump into Sunday's lesson. Memory verse on Sunday's lesson says, Stand fast, therefore, in liberty, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What holds us in bondage? What kinds of things hold us in bondage? Lies. Definitely lies. And so if lies are holding us in bondage, what's necessary to set us free? Truth. Truth. Are lies the only thing that holds us in bondage? What else holds us in bondage? Fears. Fears. Insecurities. Doubts. Feelings. So Adam and Eve ran and hid because they were afraid. Was their fear founded in reality? By the way, who were they afraid of? God. Did they need to be afraid of God? No, No, he was seeking to heal and restore and save. But yet they were still afraid of him. This is a exact how Christianity functions. We are afraid. Most Christians are more afraid of God, who's trying to save them, than unremedied sin in their life, which will destroy them. They're not afraid of the sin. They're afraid of God. If he sees it, he'll have to kill me. No, if you say like David, search me and see the wicked way in me, create me a clean heart, he's like your doctor who has a cure for the infection of the cancer, and if you let him near you and open your heart to him, he will burn out the, 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 the disease and, and fix what's broken. George. Yeah, Isaiah 61 kind of a lot. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. You think of you know of Jacob? You know how embarrassing that he was willing to put his family in front of him, and there were four hundred guys that figured that out with his brother. So you know, but he was a changed man. You know, he got a different name, so yep. he was able to heal from being a chicken to being. And, and, and Israel means what? What the name Jacob means? Deceiver, liar, deceiver. His name changed because his character changed. And Old Testament names reflect character. His name changed to Israel, which means. One who overcomes with God. Not one who overcomes God, one who with God in their life overcomes. Okay. Okay? And what did he overcome? He overcame the sin and selfishness in his life. That's what it means, yes. Which is another word to justify or set right. That's exactly right. It means to be set right or justified or put right. That's what it actually means. It's an actual state of heart change is justification. This whole legal thing cheats people out of the real justification. Just looking in the notes... Other things that we need to be free from fear, lies, our own selfish natures. Some people are how about habits well y- yes, but but I want to caveat that. I have the habit of putting my seatbelt on when I get in the car. <laughs> Not all habits are bad there 's many good habits okay so we don't need to be free from all habits I don't want to just I mean we sometimes say it, but there's, may, we may have destructive habits that we do need to be free from so we have to be discerning when it comes to the habit question because there are many really healthy habits that we have and we need to develop more of those what about free from our fear of death Hebrews two fourteen and 15 that Christ took upon himself human flesh that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death and free those who have lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of death the whole world is in fear of death and that fear of death led to an entire religion, which one-third of the world still practices today. Buddhism. Buddha, as a young man, became afraid. He, he recognized his own mortality, afraid he was going to die. And that fear was overwhelming for him, so he started the meditation. And the meditation uh, led to his fear going away. And thus, an entire re- uh, people of the world practiced Buddhism. Be- all started on his fear of death. Christ also had fear of death in Gethsemane. You see it. He agonized. He was afraid. Father, if it would be possible. This come, because he was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. But instead of going into internal meditation and an empty and mindless meditation, Christ instead overcame that fear with love. Greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And Christ destroyed the fear with perfect other-centered love. Perfect love casts out fear. And thus he rose on the third day and a perfected humanity. Last paragraph on Sunday's lesson says, This formula shares a basic similarity with Paul's terminology, but there is a fundamental difference. In Paul's metaphor, no fiction is evolved. We did, not provide, we did not provide the purchase price ourselves. The price was far too high for us. Although we were powerless to save ourselves, Jesus stepped in and did for us what we could not do, at least not without forfeiting our lives. <laughs> He paid the penalty for our sins, thus freeing us from condemnation. Do you hear any legal overtones in this? Yes. Yeah. What do you think is, is meant by the parenthetical phrase, at least not with forfeiting our lives? We could not take care of what the law was requiring, at least not, without forfeiting our lives. What are they suggesting here? If we die, if are they suggesting that the broken law required what it required was the death penalty be enforced and that we could have paid the penalty but then we don't get to live but it would have met that the law required we could have done that but we couldn't live if we'd have done that is that what they're suggesting it's a lie guys it's a wrong diagnosis see they think this is evidence they think sin is a legal problem thus requires the infliction of a legal penalty which God established as the minimum penalty being death, unless we could pay it ourselves and thus fulfill what the law required. It's all based on a false law. Our problem is not legal. Our problem is actual condition of being. Let me ask you this. If you die for your sins, do you fix your carnal nature? (laughs) Do you remedy the condition? You do not. You see, you cannot do this. Our death does not create a remedy. It wouldn't cure the condition. And so then you must ask, what does the law actually require? The false law requires death. But what does design law require?
1: Righteousness.
0: Oh, I love what you said, righteousness. This is exactly, design law requires that we are in harmony with it. It's like, what do the laws of health require of you? That if you have been smoking for so many years and you've been breaking the laws of respiration by smoking, that the laws of health require that you must be punished for doing that. Or do the laws of health, if you're going to be, have life, the laws of health require that you are restored into harmony with those laws. That's what the laws of health require. Those are design laws. So the laws of health require that sinners be set right or put right or restored back to rightness or justified or made righteous. And this is what the Bible calls righteousness. The law requires righteousness being in harmony with God and his design for life. One of the founders of the Adventist church, it would be like, again, saying the law of respiration requires that you breathe. That's what it's saying. But one of the founders of the Adventist church wrote a few things. This is out of Desire of Ages 762. Notice what this author says the law requires. See if it fits. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ, coming to earth as man, lived a holy life, developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will receive them. Or second selected message to 11. But the law requires that the soul itself be pure and the mind holy. That the thoughts and feelings may be in accordance with the standard of love and righteousness. The laws of health require that you. You see how this? It just really designs stuff. This is the new life, page thirty-two. The divine law requires us to love God supremely and our neighbor as ourselves. New Testament. The whole, entire law summed up in a single command: love your neighbor as yourself. Second, so select the messages three eighty. That which God required of Adam before his fall was perfect obedience to His law. God requires now what he required of Adam, perfect obedience, righteousness without a flaw, without shortcomings in his sight. God help us to render to him all the law requires. People go, oh, now that sounds burdensome. Oh, I've got to work so hard. It's no different than if you got cancer. And the doctor says, now the laws of health require that all the cancer be put into remission. All of it has to be gone. If you're going to really be healthy, we have to get rid of it all. We can't keep just a little bit of cancer operating in your body. We want to get rid of it all. Well, that's a lot of work for me to do to get rid of all my cancer. Well, no, no, I've got the remedy. You just have to take, you just have to stick with me. I'm going to give you the, the chemotherapy. I'm going to give you the treatment. I'm going to get rid of the cancer for you. You don't have to do it. You just have to stick with me. Well, I only want 80% wellness. I don't want to get really well. I don't want perfect health. Well, are, are you a perfectionist, Dr. Jennings? Are you a perfectionist? <laughs> <laughs> Under design law, you bet. I want perfect restoration and healing. Uh, one, one more quote, and then I'm going to come back to you. Um, this is the last one, or second last. Uh, Mount of Blessings, 54. God offered them in his Son the perfect righteousness of the law. If they would open their hearts fully to receive Christ, then the very life of God, his love, would dwell in them, transforming them into his own likeness. Thus, through God's free gift, they would possess the righteousness which the law requires. How do we get it? By working really hard or by trusting, and by trust, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ achieves and reproduces in us. No longer I have to live, but Christ lives in me. Okay.
1: In fact, this legal
0: theory is not really a good model. If, if that was really true, Jesus really should not have been resurrected. You'd have to always be separated from God. If there's something paid, if there's a ransom paid, then somehow... When, this is well said. It breaks said. down. It makes no sense. But The, you know, the healing, the, the truth makes sense, but this legal theory doesn't float. This is well done. If you actually understand how the two laws function, if the payment or uh, what the imposed law requires is eternal death, Christ didn't pay that. He died for a few hours and then rose again. And what will happen is those who hold that view will go, but he thought he was dying the eternal death, and he felt like he was, and he was willing to. Okay, So you got a guy on death row here in Tennessee because we still have the death penalty. And he goes into the death chamber to be executed for his crimes. And an anesthesiologist puts him to sleep instead of putting him to death. But he thinks he's going to die. Wakes him up a day later. And do we say then, well, because he thought he was going to die, that's the same thing as, as the death penalty. He can now go free. Would that work in this state? This is the, this is the illogical, irrational, ludicrousness that makes God out to be an idiot in his universe to teach this stuff. However, design law, then we can see how how could Christ, when you read in the New Testament, Christ is frequently telling his apostles, I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of wicked men. They're going to persecute me. They're going to crucify me. And I'm going to rise on the third day. Did he say that? Because he had foreknowledge as a human. Now, I think he had foreknowledge before he became incarnate, but we are told through various sources that he surrendered those prerogatives when he came. He could have accessed them. He had the ability to reach out and take his divine rights and use them, but that was part of the temptation. Turn this stone into bread. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to function like a human functions. I'm not going to take that. He could have, but I don't think he did. How did he know he's going to rise again? Let me ask you this. If I let go of this, how many in here are confident they can predict what will happen? Do you have the gift of prophecy? It's a future event. It hasn't happened. How can you be so confident you can predict this future event? Because you understand law. You understand design law. And when you understand design law, you can predict what will happen. Okay? Christ understood that the law of love is the law of life for the universe. And when he perfectly restores it into his humanity and destroys the infection that is destroying humanity, he will rise again. He has to. He has to. It's inevitable. It's the only outcome. And that's why it says the law of the lord is perfect in, in, in the psalms the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul bringing life to the soul so i think his prediction was a prediction he was so confident in his father's character number one and god's design for reality number two and he says in the and you put all the pieces together I hope your minds are like grabbing all these resources in scripture and you the pieces of the puzzle are fitting together but when he talks in uh, the beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5 when he's given the Sermon on the Mount he says uh, it, I did not come to destroy the law if one little jot or tittle of the law would change the, the universe is going to be destroyed basically if you read, the, read what he's saying there the life doesn't exist other than the way God designed it. you can't change it because how life works only works as God designed it to work you can't change it you only can restore to harmony to it yes Linda First
1: uh, John 3 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who are the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother.
0: And how is it being defined there? What is the right? They will know you are Christians by your Sabbath keeping, by your baptism and immersion, by your partaking of the Eucharist. They will know you are Christians by... We have hearts. Just what we read earlier, that what the renewal is a heart that loves God and others more. Than Selfishness is replaced by love. This cannot be done through legal declaration. The whole legal system cheats people out of the power. It's a form of godliness with no power. Thank you for that. That was well-read, well-said, well well-written, well well beautiful. Questions about any of this?
1: How can we spread it better?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. How can we spread it better? Because we are, I'm telling you, we're in a war. How, people, what Isaiah prophesied, darkness covers the earth, or grows darkness to people. Yeah. Jesus is the light, which lightens all men. Yeah. But when that darkness... When that light turns to darkness in you, Jesus said, oh, how great is the darkness. And so what he's saying is, there's a dark distortion over the way people see God. Jesus is the light who reveals who God and his methods truly are. But when you've taken Jesus and you've misinterpreted the cross, so the cross actually now teaches the darkness, oh, how great is the darkness. And this is what people teach. The cross was God killing his son on the cross to satisfy his anger and pay a legal penalty. Unless you can apply that legal penalty to your account in heaven. How great is the darkness? We have to come back and teach people design law, teach people to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Come back to creator worship, which is what the final message is, coming back to see God in his character of love. Somebody had a hand up over here?
1: One of the things we can start with is suggesting that we should stop hiding behind the old language Of the King James Version. And understand what some of these things really mean.
0: Yeah, but that's the version Jesus read. (laughs) I hope hope everybody knows I was saying that tongue-in-cheek, right? Jesus is speaking Aramaic, okay? Not King James English. But I say that because some people actually sadly think that. So you're right. The old King James is uh, is it is a dead, almost dead language at this point. And there's a lot of things in there that actually mean the opposite of what they mean today. You know, when you play tennis and the, and the ball catches the net, it's not a net ball, it's a let. let ball. Now, if you let somebody do something today, if you let them do it, are you hindering them or are you giving them permission? <laughs> well, in King James English, let meant to hinder. Today it means to release or give permission. And so words, um, if you look in the uh, the Thessalonian passage about the second coming of Christ we who are alive will not prevent those who have already fallen asleep prevent those well because prevent today means to hinder where in King James it meant to proceed and so today we say we will not proceed those in our English today but you read the King James and you can get a lot of misunderstanding in the King James a tone in King James English it was, it was a verb it was an action word and so we have a noun O-N-E to one people um, they had an action word. You guys were kind of having an argument. I'm going to go one you. I'm going to bring you back into unity, reconciliation. And it quickly became from one to at one. I'm going to at one you. But it was pronounced with the Old English. And so when you're all by yourself, you're not all one. You're alone. That's Old English, how you pronounce it. I'm alone. I'm going to go atone you. I'm going to bring you back into oneness. That's what atonement really means in the Old English. But Today, people see atonement as appeasement and payment, and so they get all this misunderstanding from it. And the newer versions don't have atonement. They have reconciliation often in there, because that's what it really means. So I I thank you for that. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are God of truth and love. And you've been so patient with us because our our minds, uh, our spirit temples have been corrupted with, with misunderstandings about you. And so many live in fear of you that they claim they believe in you but they're actually practicing psychological and spiritual practices that are designed to hide them from you and protect themselves from you rather than praying as the psalmist wrote search me and see what's wrong the wicked way in me O Lord and create in me a clean heart we're praying that today Lord we see the beauty of who you are as revealed in Jesus that you've gone to such lengths to reach us with the truth and, and to achieve a remedy for our condition what the law requires perfect righteousness achieved in Christ we open our hearts and ask the Spirit will take his victories, reproduce it in us so there's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We pray in your holy name. Amen.